I'm you-know-who. Good morning. Boy, you guys look great. Did anybody tell you that this morning? You guys look great. Um, I had something I wanted to share with you this morning before I get started. Um, I, I belong to a, a group of pastors, and not everybody can get together all the time, but it's quite a few of us, and we get together the last Wednesday of every month. And uh, the, the, the guy that's kind of the enabler for that, his name is Terry. Some of y'all may know Terry. He sent this out this morning, and it just really kind of was what I needed to hear, and I thought, well, maybe you would need to hear it. And I sent it out to the board. Um, it says this. It says, take comfort in this. Mistakes, failures, and setbacks do not change the destiny God has placed on your life. When you commit to a lifestyle of finishing, as a Christian, right, you begin to recognize God can turn your weaker moments into epic comebacks. This is because you are chosen. You can't stop chosen. He chose you, and that matters. Isn't that something? You guys are chosen. You guys are chosen. I thought, you know, I read that, and I, went, I kind of puffed up a little bit. You know, because it wasn't just your idea all of a sudden say, oh, I think maybe I'm going to try this Jesus thing. Oh, no, no. You didn't come up with that. The Holy Spirit drew you because God had already chosen you. We love him because he's already loved us. Amen? And so I also sent this to Mark, Mark Schilling, who's going to be our pastor here. I'm very excited about that. And um, I sent this to Mark this morning, and uh, it was a blessing to him. Um, by the way, I just want to let you know that he's going to be down here with some of his family looking around for a place to rent, okay? And, um, and, that's good. and so on the 10th, he's going to be here sharing uh, the message that morning. I'm going to be helping out with music. So um, if you hadn't heard Mark yet and you'd like to be here, be sure and write that down. It's September 10th. He's going to be here. But very excited. I, I keep in touch with Mark, just so you know, on a regular basis. Great guy. Great guy very excited. But today, okay, today is another heavy Sunday, okay? Today is a very weighty message because of the subject matter of chapter 23. It's the trials of Jesus. It's the suffering of Jesus, the crucifixion and burial of Jesus Christ. It's the events surrounding that. Jesus' first appearance before Pilate, his only appearance before Herod, King Herod, his second appearance before Pilate, where Pilate seeks to have Jesus released. He wants him released. It's the crucifixion. It's the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. And finally, this chapter ends with the burial of Jesus by Joseph of Arimathea and some of the women who came along with him to see where the body was laid so that they could return after the Sabbath and care for the body with spices and perfumes according to custom. But before we get started on that, I have a clarification for last week. Someone came up to me with a very good question about Jesus' response to the council and the chief priests last week when they asked him, are you the son of God? You remember that? You remember that? The translation that I used is the New American Standard Bible 1997 Lachman Foundation. And my version said, yes, I am. There was another version up here said something a little bit different. So I thought, well, this person came up and asked me about that. So I thought maybe if she thought this, maybe you would too. Other translations vary from my translation. Some of them say, as you say, I am. 
Some of them say, uh, you have answered correctly. Some of them say, you said it. But most translations use the literal wording of the original Greek text, which is, you say that I am, in Greek. Actually, this is what it says in the Greek. Humes legete hati ego emi. And so it actually says that ego, you know, ego, it means self, right? Well, that's I in, in the Greek language. Ego emi. So it actually says, you say that I, I am. So it's very emphatic, okay? Um, some people assume that when they read that in the English, they don't read it like people would have read it back then. They read it as kind of like, okay, well, so, well, that's what you say I am, right? That's not it. That's the assumption people make. It's not evading the question. Jesus is not evading it. It's, it's, it's like this, okay? Nothing could be further from the truth. It's, um, it's like he's saying, he's saying, yes, I am. It's emphatic. It's a confirmation, okay? Um, Luke had an excellent command of the Greek language, okay? And uh, what he's saying is this particular phrase in Greek, okay, is not an evasion or a denial, but it's an affirmation and confirmation. It's like he's saying, as you say, I am. And the word, the construction he used there is, is very close to the Greek translation of the name of God, I am that I am. So it's an affirmation, it's a confirmation. What you say is correct. Yes, I am the Son of God. And the best evidence of that is the way the council responded to Jesus when he said that. Do you remember? It said, they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it from his own mouth. That's what they say. So I hope that answers some of your questions if you had questions about that. Um, and that phrase right there leads right into verse 1 of the chapter we're looking at today. It says this in, in, in verse 1. It says, then the whole body of them, after they said we've heard this from his mouth, then the whole body of them got up and brought him to Pilate, who is the Roman governor of Judea. And this is where it gets kind of spicy, gets kind of dicey. Um, his accusers are throwing spaghetti at the wall, trying to get anything to stick to Jesus in accusing him. They're trying to paint Jesus as a threat to the stability of the region, like he's inciting rebellion against Roman rule because they know if they can get the Roman government to buy that, they're going to do something terrible to Jesus. So listen to verses 2 through 7. 2 through 7. It says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Well, that's a false witness right there. You remember a couple weeks ago, they tried to get Jesus to say that, and what did Jesus do? He said, well, who's, whose image is on the coin? And they said, oh, Caesar. And what did he say? He said, well, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God. And they were speechless. So he already straightened that out. So that's, that's a false testimony. And then it goes on, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now that has some truth to it, okay? If you remember when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the disciples and the people were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees were giving Jesus a hard time about it. They said, oh, tell him to stop. Tell him to be quiet. And he said, well, if I do, he said, the rocks will cry out. In other words, I am the Messiah. I am the king. That's what he was saying. So Pilate asked him, saying straight out, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. Very similar to the phrase that I just told you about, that kind of phrase. It's an affirmation. 
It's a confirmation. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept insisting, saying he stirs up the people from Galilee, even as far as this place, which is Jerusalem and Judah. And when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Why would he ask that? Well, Galilee is not a city. Okay, Galilee is a region. Nazareth is a city. And where is Jesus from? Yeah, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, and when he learned that Herod, um, that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was at, in Jerusalem at the time. Herod is, was what you would call, he was the king of the Jews, but he was also what's called a tetrarch. That means one of four rulers. Israel was divided into four regions, Galilee being one of them, Judea, and Herod was over Galilee. So Pilate sends him to Herod. He says, he's, he's part of Herod, so I'll just, I'll just kind of dump him over on Herod. Okay, so Pilate sends him to Herod um, because Herod was in Jerusalem, and Herod actually has a very nice palace, had one at the time uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, when Sandy and I were there, we visited, and there was a cistern down in the belly of that palace that was big enough to hold like two school buses under the ground, carved out of solid rock because it's very dry over there, but during the rainy season, they would store up the water and they had aqueducts that would lead it into there because Herod had some very lavish living things, hot tubs and this and that, whatever, and he needed a lot of water. So Herod has questions for Jesus and he questions him at great length. Um, if you remember, Herod was educated in the law and the prophets and the writings was not necessarily a devout Jew at all. He was kind of a Roman hybrid leader, actually. So I'm sure he had plenty of questions for Jesus. And the chief priests and the scribes continued to accuse Jesus of whatever they could. But Jesus answers them nothing. He doesn't answer any of the questions of Herod. So Herod and his soldiers make sport of Jesus. They're mocking him. They're sending him back to Pilate dressed in a lavish robe. Okay, which I assume was to make fun of Jesus as the so-called king of the Jews. How many of y'all ever seen Jesus Christ Superstar, the musical? Any of y'all? You remember the song Herod sings? It's kind of mocking Jesus. Come on, king of the Jews, you know. And that was really actually, that's accurate. That was Herod's attitude um, toward him. So apparently Pilate liked it when he sent him back in the robe because they became friends and they had not been before. But listen to verses 8 through 12. It says, Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had, was hearing about him and was hoping to see a sign performed by him, like he's going to do a trick for him, right? But if you want to look it up, back in chapter 9, verse 9 of Luke, we saw that Herod was also very interested in Jesus early on. He was going round and round with John the Baptist, had John the Baptist killed, and he wanted to meet Jesus, which is doesn't sound like a good idea to me, but he wanted to see him. Verse 9, and he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. Jesus gave no answers. There's a passage of scripture that this fulfills, that he's like a, like a sheep before the slaughter. He kept silent, and that's what Jesus did before Herod. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him up in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. So what is interesting about this 
text in this section is Pilate. It's very interesting because he's so reasonable. I mean, it's like he's trying, he's, he's, he's trying to get to the truth about Jesus. He wants to be just. He wants to be fair, much more than the council. Obviously, they just want Jesus dead. So he pushes back against the chief priests and the council and their accusations. Pilate basically tells them that the charges they have brought against Jesus have no substance. The charges are without merit. Jesus has done nothing deserving of death. So his ruling is, and Herod agrees with him. Herod, Herod agreed with him. Herod did not take Jesus seriously. Okay? He's harmless, basically. Okay? So his ruling is he's just going to punish Jesus and let him go. He's just going to release him. Because every year, in honor of the Passover and uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they would release one prisoner. And that's what Pilate was planning to do. So then the council, okay, when he does that, the council pushes back against Pilate, demanding that they release another prisoner, not Jesus. We want you to crucify Jesus. We want you to deliver Barabbas to us, okay, who is a bad guy. Barabbas is a bad guy. And Pilate is baffled by this, okay? He gives in to their demands. So listen to verses 13 through 25. 13 through 25. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, in other words, right here in front of you in your presence, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No merit in the charges. So nor does Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, and, and behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Therefore, here he goes, I will punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together saying, away with this man. Speaking of Jesus, not Barabbas. Away with Jesus and release for us Barabbas. And this is, tells us, verse 19 tells us who Barabbas was. He was one who had been thrown into prison for insurrection made in the city, that's Jerusalem, and for murder. He was a bad guy. So he was arrested probably for killing a Roman official or a soldier or something like that, um, battling against the Romans. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. Okay, here you go, two times. He says, they kept calling out, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why? Why? He says, what evil, what evil has this man done? I found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, here he goes, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent and with loud voices asking that he be crucified and their voices began to prevail. In other words, the crowd turned. The crowd turned because they had plants, I guess, shouting this. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demands be granted. Verse 25. And he released the man, the man that they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but delivered Jesus to their will. Delivered Jesus to their will. So next is the crucifixion. Next is the crucifixion and the Via Della Rosa. The Via Della Rosa means the way of suffering. It's the path that Jesus took. Most likely, he walked down this path to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And they believe that was the church of the Holy Sepulchre that's in Jerusalem there, that that was the spot. 
but they forced a man to carry the cross of Jesus because at that time he was probably in really rough shape. They didn't think he would make it, carrying the cross through Jerusalem. So listen to verse 26 through 32. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of people and women who were mourning and lamenting him. They didn't want him to die. He had brought some women with them, some of the women from Galilee. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. So even now, Jesus is thinking of others and not himself. He says, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. When they will begin, they, then they will begin to say, To the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. In other words, we don't want to be alive anymore. And that kind of situation actually happens in Jerusalem. It was a massacre, what they did to Jerusalem. And he says this, For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? If they do this now, when the Messiah is here, what are they going to do when I'm not here? Two others, also who were criminals, were being led uh, to be put to death with him. Okay, so Jesus is thrown in with the bunch, and it's a bad bunch. Apparently two criminals, very similar to Barabbas, okay? In fact, Barabbas was probably going to be put to death with these guys. And they've already been scheduled for execution. So they also make their way to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And there they crucify Jesus and these thieves, one on the left, and one on the right. But even on the cross, think about this, even on the cross, Jesus is thinking about others. Jesus is being Jesus. He's forgiving people who are doing, he's forgiving the people who are doing this to him. And they never even said they were sorry. What an example of forgiveness. The rulers, the elders are sneering and condescending to Jesus. The soldiers are mocking him and doing what they can to make him miserable on the cross. They're offering him sour wine. What? Just, just to make him miserable. But he's forgiving. He's forgiving them. And he's thinking of them. Through all of this. And something that hit me while I was working on this, is on the cross, Jesus is thinking of all these people around him. All of a sudden it hit me, and I believe this, I think he was also thinking of us. All of us sitting in this room. I think Jesus was thinking about me on the cross. And he's thinking, yeah, I gotta do this. Remember, he didn't want to do this. But not my will, Father, yours. He was thinking about us. He was thinking about Carson and his family. All right, He was thinking... Uh, um, about Sandy. He was thinking about you. He was thinking about me on the cross. And that just boggled my mind. That Jesus, I got to do this. And they are the reason. We are the reason that he had to do that. So listen to verses 33 through 38. It said, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right, and one on the left, hanging up on the cross. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments uh, amongst themselves. Sounded to me like they kind of knew what they were doing, but he's talking about him being the Son of God. 
And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves, save yourselves. Now there was also an inscription above his head, right, saying this is the king of the Jews, another way to make fun and to mock him. In these last five verses, a conversation takes place between Jesus and the two criminals. On the cross, they're having this conversation. And they are being executed, okay, for something like Barabbas, like what he did. One of them is contentious, okay, one of them is contentious, and he's like the soldiers, he's mocking him, he's condescending, but the other, okay, the other is humble and repentant and respectful of Jesus. And Jesus makes an amazing promise to him in response to this. And what I want you all to know is that with these guys, you know, maybe we're not murderers, okay? But we are, like, are kind of like Barabbas. We're like Barabbas and Jesus. Barabbas was guilty, okay? He was very guilty. Jesus was innocent. Jesus was innocent. Yet Jesus took Barabbas' place on the cross. That's where Barabbas, it wouldn't have been Jesus, it would have been these two guys and Barabbas. Jesus took his place on the cross. So something that's important for us to remember is that's like us. Jesus took our place on the cross. Jesus died so that we could live. And Jesus makes an amazing promise to this person in response. Listen to 39 through 43. It says, one of the criminals who was hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, you are, not, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. He was rebuking the other criminal. Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing. Remember that. Jesus was sinless. He was innocent. He was innocent. And this person had probably seen Jesus at some point, right? So he's saying, this guy's innocent. Look, and he's dying. And he was saying, he said this to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, okay, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. In paradise. So that guy's saved. Why? Because he believed in Jesus. He said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, Jesus died for that man on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. The next six verses record the death of Jesus Christ and the response of those who were standing around watching him die of crucifixion. There was the centurion, the crowds, Jesus' friends and followers, the disciples, acquaintances, including the women who had accompanied him from Galilee. So listen for that in verses 44 through 49 to their reactions. It was now about the sixth hour. A darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured. Not sure what it was. Clouds, we don't know. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, when it says the sixth hour in, 
in Israel, the day starts at 6 a.m. John Blake's day starts at 6 a.m. I usually get up at 6. Same thing, okay? So the sixth hour of the day is what? 12 noon. The ninth hour is what? 3. This is just an important thing to think about. At 3 p.m., at that time, it was the regular time for the evening sacrifices for sin. 3 o'clock. In what? The temple. It was the time where people offered, made offerings and sacrifices for their sins. And that's when Jesus died. It's very symbolic. That's when Jesus died. So it says, the sixth hour, the darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m., because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. The symbolism of the veil being torn in two is that was, the, that was in the temple, and it divided all the people from the holy of holies, which is where the presence of God stares. When Jesus died, it was torn, other gospels say, from top to bottom. What Jesus did for us is he's the way and the truth and the life. He made a way for us to not be separated from God. He died for our sins and made the way so that we could be in God's presence. And not only because of Jesus can we be in God's presence, but God's presence can be in us. That's the Holy Spirit which came, right, after Jesus in the book of Acts, right? So the temple is torn. Jesus took away the separation of sin that kept us from God. And we're reconciled to God. We're redeemed by him. That's very, very important. It's very important. But they watched Jesus die. It goes on to say this. It says, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. The other two were probably still alive. But he breathed his last between the two criminals. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God. I don't totally understand that because he's a Roman. He may have been a Gentile. I don't know. But he began praising God. But this is what he says. Certainly this man was innocent. That's important. The thief on the cross knew it. He knew it. And all the crowds who came to, together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. In other words, something terrible just happened here. An innocent man was put to death and executed. And all his acquaintances and the women, that probably included his large group of followers, the 12, and it says here, the women who accompanied him from Galilee, standing at a distance, seeing these things. Seeing these things. They watched Jesus die. His disciples, all of those people, they watched him die. They watched him suffocate and bleed to death on the cross in the darkness in the middle of day between 12 and 3, in the darkness. And it was clear by their reactions that Jesus was innocent. And that's important. Because what those people, what was not clear to them was that Jesus was the sacrifice that day wasn't in the temple. He was on the cross. But he was the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Jesus was the Lamb of God who died he, to take away the sins of the world. But he would not stay dead, would he? He would not stay dead. He would rise on the third day for our salvation. For our salvation. 
This chapter ends with a man named Joseph. He's from the town of Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea, like Jesus of Nazareth. He got permission from Pilate to remove and bury the body of Jesus. And Joseph was assisted by some of the women who followed Jesus. They're mentioned actually in the next chapter, so very likely it's Mary Magdalene, Joanne, who's also, Luke mentions in the book of Acts as part of the early church, um, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. So listen to these last six verses, verse 50 through 56. Listen to what it says. It says, And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan of action. Okay, the council that put Jesus to death, he was part of the council. He was part of the council. But he was not on board with their plan and the people that were doing that. He was a man of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. So he was a Messianic Jew. He was waiting for the Messiah. And obviously here, he believes that Jesus was the Messiah, Joseph of Arimathea. In John, it says also that Nicodemus was there. Okay? This man, Joseph, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen cloths and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been lain. Now that's important because in Jerusalem they reused tombs. For hundreds of years, thousands of years, they reused tombs. Okay? But this was the tomb of a rich man because it was carved into solid stone. A lot of them are just these little boxes. There's tons of them outside the walls of Jerusalem sitting all over the places, filled with remains. Okay? But this was cut into the rock. It was the tomb of a rich man which was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53 that the Messiah would be laid in a rich man's grave. So that's important. That's important. So when we read that, we need to know that. It was preparation day, verse 54, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was laying. So they followed Joseph, saw where Jesus was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. So this is Friday, after they had taken Jesus down from the cross. It's Friday. They followed him to the tomb. Okay, this is between 3 and 6. The Sabbath for Saturday begins at sundown on Friday. So they, after they see where Jesus is laying, they run back, they prepare the spices, they get everything ready because they're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath, right? So they get that all ready for Sunday morning. And what happens on Sunday morning? The resurrection. The resurrection of the Lamb of God, the resurrection of the Son of God, the resurrection of the Son of Man, the resurrection of the Messiah, your Savior, and my Savior. 